Hi, I'm Dave Westberg, and you're listening to the Billboard Insider Podcast, where I interview industry leaders about trends impacting the U.S. out-of-home advertising business. This podcast is sponsored by Adomni. Increase your revenue by listing your billboard on Adomni. Today's guest is Jim Madalone, who founded, ran, and recently sold Ashby Street Outdoor, an out-of-home company with 1,908 faces in Arkansas, Kansas, Oklahoma, and Missouri. Welcome to the show, Jim. Uh, thanks, Dave. Jim, you have a great origin story. Can you talk a little bit about your background and how you entered the out-of-home business? Sure. It was quite some time ago, back in the mid-'80s. I was in Atlanta, just working my way through college, selling patio furniture, and I happened to sell Jim McLaughlin, who was running the Turner Outdoor Plan at the time, set of patio furniture, and luckily we had a billboard on the property, and he had a Turner T-shirt on, and we had a conversation, and it turned out to be my first interview out of college. And so I started, I guess, 33 years ago. You know, your story is not unusual. I think of Andrea Messmer-Henley, who was selling copiers to Adams Outdoor, and they liked her so much. There must have been something about your personality that Jim, who was a great evaluator of talent, he must have said, man, I got to have this guy working for me. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't know if it was quite that good, but uh, yeah. he at least gave me a shot and gave me an interview. <laughs> so tell me, Jim, about the formation of Aspie Street in 2011. Talk about that process. What made you want to go out on your own, form a company? Talk about that process. Well, the primary motivation before Ashby Street, I had been running. We had built a large platform called Next Media Outdoor, which was actually owned by a radio platform. So we were somewhat of a microcosm of the Clear Channel saga in the sense that while we were building up a radio, an outdoor platform and growing value, the radio platform was slowly declining in value. So when the recession hit, you know, we were going concern and we had to restructure and that was a frustrating experience from that experience i learned i really wanted to go out on my own and just start an outdoor company that basically there was nobody but me and the and the investment money to worry about and so yes i started looking for money to, to do the deal and it's always easier said than done you hear a lot of people say oh well, it's easy to find investment money but usually pe firms they want to see a deal first they want to see assets and something to put in their money into and then of course the people they're selling want to make sure you have money behind you so it's yes. a little bit of a chicken and the egg story <laughs> oh yeah so, I, I remember fundless sponsors is what you call someone without money and you're right. They want to see a deal. But then you finally put a deal together, didn't you? Talk about your initial transaction. I had cold called Brian Fowler, who had a company in Northwest Arkansas called Fowler Media. And it was a nice, really well-built outdoor plant, very strong real estate portfolio. And what really caught my attention, you know, I'd had a lot of experience in markets this size. And when I heard the average rates he was getting per face on his static faces, it was about 20% higher than what I was used to. And having not been familiar with this area, that really stuck out. And I was like, wow, that's interesting. So when I came up here and really got into the whole, understood the whole Walmart headquarters here, Tyson headquarters, all these corporate headquarters here, it really sunk in that this was quite a hidden gem. Mm -hmm. So Ryan and I kind of, we basically, that first meeting, I sort of just negotiated. He was just starting to put a digital, he was putting like three or four digitals in place. And we negotiated a, a price point pretty much that first day. Wow. There was a saga getting the money and then getting the deal put together and the timing it took another three or four months before it all came together, but we were able to put it together uh, with Tenecom. I was able to find some money in a great investment group. I really got lucky there. Now, Jim, you were raising money not too long after the 2008-2009 slump, 
And those yep. were tough, tough times in the industry, but also tough times in the money markets. How in the world were you able to raise money just after a period where there was just blood on the streets in terms of the, the investment community? It's interesting. Getting debt was pretty hard. This was 2010. So things had lightened up a little bit. And so there was equity money on the sidelines, but yes. it was very cautious, right? Everybody was real cautious with it. No one was going to back me to go find a deal. I had to have something mm-hmm. ready to go, and then they had to evaluate it. Mm-hmm. Now, what Meg Tinnicum, the perfect partner, was they had been looking at Outdoor for about four years prior to this. And Tinnicum folks are, you know, they're going to be very knowledgeable about an investment before they ever put their money in it, which worked out great for me because they were primed and ready to go. And it really became a love at first sight deal. I mean, I had this great little group of assets to start with, had run a big company. So I knew how to build a bigger plant, a much bigger platform. And yeah, they had deep pockets. What I really liked about Tenecum was their pockets were deep enough to where this acquisition wasn't going to be it. We could go after Fairway or Mm -hmm. Clear Channel, and Mm -hmm. that's really what excited me. Hadn't they done some other media transactions? They had done radio in the past. They were had done some cell tower stuff. And they were and they were very prudent investors. They don't put a lot of debt on their businesses, so they've never had an issue where something went south on them. They're they just had a great track record. Jim, what kind of questions did they want to ask you during diligence? That's a long time ago, but mm-hmm. I know one thing. I felt like I'd been put through the mill pretty good. <laughs> they they did their diligence. Yes. Quite a bit. I mean, they called every single reference that I gave them in the industry. They had, I did a pretty in-depth psych profile. Yes. <laughs> yes. And they went through and yeah, they just wanted to know how I was going to run a company, how I evaluated assets. They just wanted to understand how I was going to do it. And they didn't take what I said at face value. They went and like, they called former employees, they called former equity guys, they called everybody. Mm-hmm. What I liked about them was no one's going to BS their way through through their screening process. It's going to be, if you were a straight shooter, it was great. And luckily for me, that's kind of how I am anyway. So it worked out great. And to me, this issue of, you know, they'll turn over all the stones. You have to be honest with your equity partners, the good and the bad. Either it's about assets or your personal experience. I can think of some equity funds that have walked from a deal when they found one member of the management team, for instance, who has said he had a degree from somewhere and he didn't. I mean, you just, you got to be honest. Because they, they, the attitude is, if this if this guy's lying about something we found out, what else is he lying about that we don't know about? The way I look at it is it's almost like you're cheating yourself a little bit if you're not completely candid. Because for me, it was things like I admitted to the mistakes that we made at Next Media and things we learned from and yes. you know where our weaknesses were. And I said, here's what I've learned from that and here's what I plan to do in the next this next venture. An aside about radio and out of home, it seems, Jim, that it works well. When you are a very small company, you have maybe one budget, one manager that oversees both out of home and radio. I can think of a number, for instance, of small independent operators that thrive. But when you get big enough where you have separate silos, I think the synergies just all fall apart. Yeah, I think radio in smaller local markets now does well. And like you said, with guys that are sort of, you know, really... The owners are manning the ship, so to speak. There's still dollars. There's a lot of local dollars there. But in, in the format of like the Clear Channel, the big mega radio companies, and which is really next media, we were like a small version of that, right? We had like, I don't forget how many radio markets we were in, but it was over a dozen. We just were over levered mm-hmm, mm-hmm. was the reality. And when you're and the cash flows were slowly declining each year mm-hmm. before the recession. 
Yes. And so that slow decline, we were offsetting that most of that time frame between 01 and 07 with outdoor growth. We were kind of offsetting that a little bit, but it was it was a drag. And then when 08 hit, mm-hmm. yeah, we just weren't ready for it. It was no way. So you bought your assets. Mm-hmm. And Jim, I've always admired your ability to operate. It's sort of like, look, I look around and I say, geez, if Jim Madelon's doing that, I ought to be doing that. What were some <laughs> operating steps that you took during your seven years running Ashby Street to maximize value, apart from, you know, acquisitions. But what were some ways that you, when you, when you bought these assets, you said, these are some operating things that I need to do to maximize value. What were some of the things you did? Well, probably it's not a big shock. You know, digital deployment was a, a big part of our strategy. Every year at Ashby, our growth was driven by digital. We deployed digital almost every year. I, I'm trying to remember the number that we probably deployed somewhere between 40 and 50 organic digitals in the eight years we did it. And then combine that with the, obviously the ones we acquired, we ended up at like 91. But we were just real aggressive. We weren't like just blindly putting digitals up. We were prudent in each one we deployed in making sure that we felt like with conservative projections, we were going to get good returns. And we did. We almost always exceeded those projections. Hmm. When you look at my overall growth plan, it was maintain static revenue and grow digital. Mm-hmm. And we did that almost every single year. So that was sort of our top line strategy. Now to do that, as we expanded digital, we had to get really good at the digital product and how we marketed it. So we came up with more flexible products on how to sell it. Mm-hmm. We just got more creative and it wasn't just selling a location. You took a slot. I mean, we mm-hmm. had all kinds of flex packages and rotaries and things like that that our staff came up with that really helped sell it. The second thing I think we really did was with by working with John and apparatics. Yes. It just really maximized that that really maximized our efficiencies in not just digital but all of our operations. And we helped John sort of expand how apparatics could be used, you know, the reporting systems. I mean, I was sort of the guy that always called John up said, okay, John, I really could use this and I could use that. And John's always been good about doing that. Jim, I get asked constantly about software to run a business. Can you give the overview of apparatics, what it is, how it helped you run your business? John's wrote this, started writing this, at least in the form it is now, when we had Next Media. Because he's in Fort Collins, we had a billboard plant in Fort Collins. Mm -hmm. And so we needed a software package, you know, and the stuff off the shelf was just really expensive. Mm -hmm. And so John said, look, I'll, I'll develop this kind of from the ground up. So he wrote this thing really kind of to my specs completely. And what I wanted was an all-encompassing system that did everything. I didn't want to have a software for real estate and a software for sales. I wanted an all-encompassing operation system so that everything talked to everything. If your your revenue was X on a board, then the real estate knew about it. Mm-hmm. And there wasn't anything, that, any communication that had to be done. Well, so John did that. He spent three years learning our business. He's they basically spent three years in our office in Fort Collins sort of learning how our business worked. Wow. And then he just started expanding it from there. And so when I started Ashby, I immediately said, implement this here and let's start, let's kind of take it to the further step. So he started to refine the reports we got. We got more sophisticated systems of reporting that I wanted. And just and the reality is apparatics, the bigger you are, the more efficiency it creates, obviously. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. As we got bigger, I mean, when we acquired the clear channel assets, I, there were personnel I just flat out didn't need because our software took care of it, you know, took care of how we communicate. It can do everything from billing, scheduling. I always thought, you know, your company has an amazing website 
And that's all tied in the apparatic system, right? So if you make any change anywhere, it automatically updates your website? Oh, yeah. So if we convert a static to a digital, it'll be a, it'll show as a digital on the website. So, yeah, the inventory is all married up there. But the other things on the sales side, for example, what I always thought was great was it communicates with the sales contact management system and the proposal system, connects to inventory. So our salespeople know up to the minute what was available. Wow. And I can look at something that isn't selling and say, okay, wow, this board's not selling. And, you know, the first thing you think of is, well, maybe we got a price too high. It hasn't been sold for nine months now. Is our pricing too high? But you never know for sure. Well, I can tell if it's how many proposals have been generated on a particular piece of inventory in the last 12 months, the last six months, and the last month. So I can say, well, you know, no, we're, it's not priced too high. We're just not pitching it enough. Wow. Wow. I knew how many proposals had been generated off of that particular unit. So just little things like that that we refined over time that John did that just made that system really good for us. And yeah, it was a big part of our efficiency. And as a result, we had very few admin people that we needed because the system took care of that. Mm -hmm. Let's take a break here for a word from our sponsor, Adomni. Join the fastest growing out-of-home network alongside over 70,000 digital screens. Adomni easily connects with Watchfire, Formetco, or Dactronics billboards and enables advertisers and agencies to quickly find and buy your unsold billboard space. With Audience IQ technology, advertisers can target consumer profiles such as demographics, behavior, and interests that travel past your billboards. Visit Adomni.com or email sales at Adomni.com to learn more. Mention this Billboard Insider podcast to receive one free year of Adomni's white-labeled booking engine on your website. Jim, how do you evaluate the different automated platforms, AdQuick, Vistar, you know, Adomni? Did Ashby use any of the automated platforms for selling digital space, or did you really rely on your own effort? Well, we were relying on our own effort. We were kind of late to the party. We were just starting to get into that before we sold. John was setting up a system where those guys could have access to our inventory, and I intentionally because it was really hard to evaluate i mean there's that um there's like there's like half a dozen of them now right yes that are doing this yes blip and um yes. the, was it Vistar? Vistar, uh, yeah, and, yeah yeah the Vistar one sounded great to me it looked like they were going after kind of a different pocket of money at least initially it's going to be a different pocket of money so that one really i was kind of attracted to and so john had was just setting that up so that basically they would work through him and they would have access to all of our digitals but we had not Mm -hmm. implemented that prior to the Lamar sale. So I don't really have any experience, okay. but I do believe there's going to be quite a bit of potential growth coming out of that stuff. Yes. I didn't have any real experience with it. Okay. Ashby Street grew via several acquisitions, including the acquisition of more than 1,300 faces in Arkansas and Kansas from Clear Channel Outdoor in 2016. Mm -hmm. Jim, what makes for a successful out-of-home acquisition? <laughs> well, the, the short, sweet answer is don't pay too much, right? <laughs> you know, you know, you know the, the, everyone, there's a saying that, you know, don't celebrate the entrance, celebrate the exit. Anyone can enter the business Definitely. or expand by overpaying, but not everyone can it. buy right to exit well. Correct. Obviously, it's simplistic, but that's probably the biggest thing. But that's mm -hmm. a more difficult question to answer than, uh, you know, to, to actually do than when, you, when you're trying to do it. Yes, yes. Because nobody thinks they overpay. And mm -hmm. obviously, you end up doing that sometimes. My experience has been, like anybody else is doing this, you evaluate what you think you can do with it. 
And that's really where the rubber hits the road is if you think there is upside in expense savings, if you think there's a lot of top line growth potential that has not been tapped into, you think the market characteristics are great, you know, what kind of staff are you getting or if you're getting any, you know, that can have a big impact. I mean, really, one of the things I was completely blessed with, you know, when I did Ashby was the core team at Fowler, which was only three or four people, turned out to be awesome. I mean, they were, they, and they were with me till we sold eight years later and about Whit Weeks and Jason and the team there, we would have never done as well as we did. So mm-hmm. I was kind of blessed with a great team. And so that is a big part of an acquisition is understanding if you're getting a staff where the diamonds are, because sometimes they're, they're not necessarily the top people. Yes. Yes. And so that's a big part of it, but really it's evaluating those three things, mm-hmm. asset quality, the market conditions, competition, and just understanding what you can do with it. When you did the acquisition, were there any areas where you thought you could do something and it didn't turn out, the thesis didn't turn out, or were there areas where you outperformed even your investment thesis for the acquisition? <laughs> well, if I said I never had, uh, I'd never stepped in a pile of it, I would be lying, right? I'm, <laughs> yeah. that, that's definitely happened. Usually it's, a, it's kind of a blend, right? Yes. Uh, there's a number of things you think you're going to do, and some of those things don't turn out as well as you think. But then there are other things like the Clear Channel deal. There were areas where we did a whole lot better than we thought we would. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And that's typically what happens, you know, that you might think, OK, we're going to, you know, look at these occupancies on posters. We think we can drive that by, you know, 15 percent over a three year period. And, yeah, maybe you only drive that by half that. Mm-hmm. So you don't get the growth out of that. But then you find out, wow, there's like twice as many opportunities with digital as we thought. Oh, OK. So there's just areas where you're going to do better. I mean, the cost savings were a little better on that particular deal. You know, and, mm-hmm. and then our Wichita growth, top line growth in Wichita was a whole lot stronger than we thought it would be. Wow. And I mean, overall, it worked out great. But mm-hmm. there were definitely areas that I'm sure that if I look back at the model, I go, oh, well, well, we didn't do that yep. like we thought we would. Yep. And that that's the case in every deal I've ever done. Mm-hmm. Hopefully you have more wins than you have. <laughs> than you have I losses, hear you. Though. That's the key. Yep. <laughs> now, last week, you announced the sale of Ashby Street to Lamar Advertising. What advice would you give to someone who is close to selling their company? Well, first thing, you definitely want to research, know what the market is paying, and I would say be realistic in your assessment of your value. And that's always easier said than done. All of us that are selling a company, and I'm included, you know, you think, man, we're the greatest thing since sliced bread. We should get the record price ever. But knowing what you're worth, and by doing that, I mean objectively going out and understanding what market multiples are for companies of your similar size and your similar markets, and then understanding who made purchases like that and why they made them. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I mean, you sometimes you'll hear about a small, smaller independent in a big market that gets this monster multiple. And, you know, the reason for that is there's a ton of upside. It was a competitive market. And one of the bigger players wanted that market share and they paid up for that knowing they had a lot of upside. And so they got this big monster multiple on the cash flow. Well, but that's not going to happen if you're a good operator and your market, you know, you don't have, you're not a tuck in for anybody. You're not going to get the multiple for those reasons. Mm-hmm. So you have to be realistic in that assessment. If you're a very efficiently run company, you've got to understand that that's going to limit the upside an acquirer has in you potentially. So then you're going to, they're going to evaluate you more on other things like the strength of your market, the strength of your real estate portfolio. So you just have to know where your strengths and weaknesses are in terms of somebody evaluating you. Mm-hmm. And another a new component, if you're a big digital player, understanding the age of your digitals. 
Hmm. That becomes a factor now, right? If you have a lot of digital revenue and your digital boxes are starting to age, you're in the second half of the lifespan, you're six years into those things. Well, that's going to impact your deal because somebody buying you is going to have to invest that capital again. Yes, right. So replacement costs may impact what someone can pay for your assets. Yep. Jim, you use, was it Molis and Company as an advisor? Would you recommend someone selling to use an advisor? I think it's a scale thing. Mm -hmm. If you're of a larger scale, I think that's where having an advisor is important. And I think that that who the advisor is, it, it should be tied to the scale. Mm-hmm. There's a number of good outdoor guys out there, you know, Khalil and Captain mm-hmm. Freddie and those guys. And, mm-hmm. and we went with Mullis, who did a great job. I think any one of those guys could have done a great job for us. You know, they know the, they, they know yeah. the outdoor industry. Mm-hmm. I, of course, I felt like I could have done it myself. <laughs> but <laughs> yeah. But my, my equity partners were probably wiser than I was. Okay. Yeah. What's next for Jim Madelone? Well, Dave, I've been thinking about this for something. Something I've been wanting to do for a while, as you know, I started in Atlanta, mm-hmm. and something that I've always wanted to do and never, it never had the chance. But I'm going to try out for the Atlanta Braves. That's going to be my <laughs> next move. <laughs> Is that right? Good. <laughs> well, it's good so to have a dream. <laughs> a 50, that's right. A 58 year old rookie that can't play yeah. baseball. Left, uh, they'll be looking for that. Uh, in the so, no, yeah. I, I'm not sure uh, what I'm going to do. I, mm-hmm. I'm going to take it easy for a while. If I can help some other companies with some consulting, mm-hmm. may see if John and I could work together a little bit on, on the ATX stuff. I don't know. Good for so you. Gonna, I'm just going to kind of consider options and take a little bit of a break and see what happens yeah. next. Last question, if you could change, you, you've had a really terrific run in the industry. If you could change two or three things about the way the out-of-home industry does business, what would they be? These can be major, minor, but if you could change two or three things, what would it be? Wow, that's a tough one. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> It'd be good if there was better communication between independents and the large guys. We need to get smaller independents to be a part of OAAA. Mm-hmm. But to do that, they need a bigger voice at the table. I mean, I thought the IBO is, is a great organization. I really enjoyed. Matter of fact, I got as much out of IBO as I ever did of OAAA. Uh, and as you know, Chris has done a great job with that. OAAA really needs to give these guys a bigger voice. And I think it will create a bigger, you know, unified industry if we can do that. Great advice, Jim. Great advice. Yeah. That's all for this week. Thanks for appearing on the show, Jim. I appreciate it. Thanks, Dave. This podcast was sponsored by Adomni. Increase your revenue by listing your billboard on Adomni. You can listen to episodes of the Billboard Insider podcast by visiting billboardinsider.com or by subscribing to the Billboard Insider podcast on iTunes or any of the usual podcast outlets. Our email is billboardinsider at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks for listening, and I'll be back in a couple weeks.